This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, most kids, when you learn to ride a bike, you learn to ride a bike with training wheels, don't you? And the training wheels, they help keep you balanced. They help keep you from falling over and skinning your knees and getting some road rash while you're learning how to ride, while you're learning how to balance. I said most kids because my boys didn't learn with training wheels. My boys learned with what we call a strider bike. It's like a little kid's bike that doesn't have any pedals. And the idea behind the strider bike is you're learning how to balance first, and then you go to a bike with pedals. And so long story short, my boys picked up riding a bicycle with pedals without training wheels in like 15 minutes because of it. Uh, that has nothing to do with the sermon. That has nothing to do with the intro. I just wanted to brag on my kids for learning how to ride a bike so quickly and um, brag on my wife because it was her idea, and I thought it was a really silly idea, but it was a brilliant idea. So anyway, strider bikes. Most kids, though, learn how to ride with training wheels. Not after today. I don't have stock in like any Strider bike company, by the way. Most kids, though, learn to ride a bike with training wheels. And you're riding with training wheels until that big day comes, when, when dad takes the training wheels off. And as a kid, you begin to pedal. And you're wobbling, and you're weaving, and you're trying not to fall over to one side. You're trying not to lean too far to fall to the other side. You're, you're balancing the best you can, but it, eventually, it's almost if by magic, they stay upright, and off they go around the corner, and then they want to ride their bike every day, all day, don't they? And then you got to ride your bike with them. And what we've seen over the course of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia that we've been looking at in our series, What Makes Us Family, is that the Mosaic law that God handed down to Moses atop Mount Sinai, that was, that was in some sense the training wheels that God gave his people, right, to keep them upright. And like those training wheels, like the Mosaic law, it was, it was given for a purpose, right? Paul, back in chapter 3, he, he referred to it as a guardian. Right, that, that protected God's people, that helped them learn how to live and keep them from falling over. That said, if you've read through much of the Old Testament, um, the training wheels didn't always work. Israel crashed and burned a few times, and they got some pretty nasty road rash a couple times, didn't they? But most of the time, it kept them up. And like the training wheels, they, they had a purpose, but they were also never meant to be permanent, were they? Right? They, they, were, they were only ever intended to be temporary. Because as we saw last week, as we began this third and final section in these last two chapters, we, we saw in verse 1 that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Right? We're free from what? He set us free from the burden of the Mosaic law in this worry of if we have done enough, if we are good enough for God, if we are accepted by God. Because what we've seen throughout this whole letter is that it is our faith in Jesus Christ that makes us family. Right? Nothing more, nothing less. So he's freed us from the burden of the Mosaic law, but we also saw how he, he freed us from the bondage of sin through his death and resurrection. He's freed us from the weight of those chains that enslave us. But here's the thing, if we're free, if the training wheels have been removed, so to speak, then what keeps us upright, right? How do we, how do we balance walking in this life without those training wheels, what, what enables to live in that freedom without falling too far to one side, right, losing our freedom, and what keeps us from falling too far to the other side, abusing our freedom? Well, last week we saw that Christ 
secured our freedom. And what we're going to see this morning is that it's the Holy Spirit that enables, to, enables us to live in this freedom. That's what we're going to see in our sermon called Living by the Spirit, right? Living by the Spirit. And so if you haven't already, let's pull out our Bibles. Let's open them up to Galatians, the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 5. We're going to be in that second half of chapter 5 in verses 15 to six, uh, 16 to 25. And we're going to see three things here this morning. We're going to, first, we're going to see how living by the Spirit keeps us balanced, how the Spirit does this. Then we're going to see what happens when we live by the Spirit, but also what happens when we don't. And then we're going to close by seeing two ways that we go about living by the Spirit. And so first, how, like, how do we do this? How do we live by the Spirit? What does this mean? How does, how does living by the Spirit keep us from falling over? How does it keep us balanced? How does it keep us from falling to one side, losing our freedom, and falling to the other side, abusing that same freedom? Well, it's by trusting in the Spirit, right? I mean, that kind of this writes itself, living by the Spirit, by trusting in the Spirit. But there's a little bit more to this, right? He shows us two ways here, and the first is that we trust in the Spirit, right? We trust in Him, in God, to keep us from falling and abusing that freedom by relying on the Spirit's strength rather than our own. And I don't even... You may have gone to the gym, you may be working out, uh, you may think you're doing pretty good, but you may think you're pretty strong, but we're not as strong as we think we are, are we? And so we rely on the strength of the Spirit. So look down here with me. Chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Notice right out of the gate how Paul describes the Christian life. He doesn't describe it as a a decision, but as a journey. He didn't say, invite the Spirit into your heart. No, he says, walk by the Spirit. And I think that that subtle change, it changes the way that we think about our faith. I think it changes the way that we view our relationship with Christ, right? Because see, rather than viewing it as this single action that's done in the past, right? You, you responded to an invitation. You, you answered an altar call. You prayed a certain prayer. You got dunked in the baptismal. Uh, side note, by the way, uh, God willing, be praying for the... You know, we, we like prayed for the door the other day and for the heater Rob had us pray for. Um, pray for the baptismal. More pray for the guy who's working on the baptismal so we get that heater working on Tuesday when he comes back. He's made like 14 trips to try and get that heater working because uh, we got baptisms on Easter Sunday. Amen? And so, side note, side plug, uh, if you're here this morning, you're like, I'm ready to be baptized, and I haven't done it yet, and I'm ready to take the plunge in a heated baptismal. When Pastor Rob comes up to help us with the info card and announcements, check that box on the info card to get baptized, and man, I would love to take you back there and baptize you next Sunday as we celebrate the risen Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay. Anyway, that was a slight little baptism plug. But it's not about a one-time decision right? It's, it's something that we're always continually still doing, right? Faithfully following the way of Jesus. How? By walking by the Spirit. And that means a few things to show that we're walking by the Spirit. The first is it, it implies movement, doesn't it? It implies movement, that we're not, we're not sitting down. We are not standing still but perpetually moving, continually walking. So there's movement. But it also, I think, helps us see the pace of this journey, the pace of the movement. It's slow, 
it is sustainable. Right? It's a walk. It's not a sprint. We're walking by the Spirit. And the beautiful part of this walk, it's like a beautiful walk in the woods where God has put some predetermined benches along the path so that we can rest on this journey, didn't he? Right? He, he, he puts a bench there every night as we sleep and every week as we Sabbath. There's movement. There's a pace. But what we see is that we're moving in a very specific direction, aren't we? we are, we're moving towards a very specific destination, a, a telos to this journey. And that destination is Jesus, isn't it? And moving with, with greater intimacy in our relationship with Jesus. Growing in our faith. Growing to be more like Jesus. And so if we walk by the Spirit as we live in this freedom, relying on the Spirit's strength rather than our own, relying on the Spirit's wisdom for guidance rather than our own, he says you won't then gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't have to worry about falling and abusing this freedom as long as you remain walking in the Spirit. Now when Paul says flesh here, we talked about this the other day as well, flesh here, it's not referring to our physical body. Right? Paul's not a dualist here where the, the body is bad and the spirit's good. No, he's talking about here our, our sinful nature, our sinful desires that, that exist in our hearts and our minds, these cravings that we have for things that are contrary to God's will and to his word, these desires that we have that, that deviate from the way God has created us to live and called us to live as his children. And sin here Remember, sin doesn't just describe what we do, does it? No, sin describes who we are. We don't, we don't grow into our fallen state. We don't develop these sinful desires over time. We don't choose as we get older the ways in which we are tempted. No, we are born into this state. We are born into our fallen nature. One that, he says, keeps us from doing the things we want to do, those things that we ought to do as followers of Jesus. Because the truth is, as strong as you think we are, we, we don't have the strength within us on our own to resist the temptation when it comes, to restrain those sinful desires. But not only do we not have the strength to fight our sin, we don't have the desire to fight our sin. Not on our own. He, he may as well have written here, walk by your own strength and you will gratify the desires of your flesh. But not, he says, when we walk by the Spirit. Why is that? Well, it's because our flesh... Our flesh and God's spirit, they, they desire different things, completely different things. They are, they are opposed to each other. They are repelled against each other. They're against each other. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like if you take two magnets and two North Pole magnets and, and point them towards each other. You all remember third grade science class? I think it's third grade. Maybe it was fourth grade. If you're in third grade and you haven't gotten there yet, it's fourth. That's fine. Uh, third grade or maybe like third year electrical engineering and electromagnetics class, amen, all right? No? No? Okay, that was like my favorite class was electromagnetics. I don't get it. But uh, two North Pole magnets, when you, when you face them towards each other, you, they don't click, do they? They repel from each other. There's a force between them opposing them. And that's because two things pointing in opposite directions can't both claim to be pointing in the same direction. If this is north, this can't be north. 
And what's happening is the Holy Spirit is pointing us to God. He is opposing our flesh. He is repelling those desires that that claim to be good for you, but actually point you further away from God. But at the same time, I want us to be clear. I want us to make sure we're not hearing what Paul's not saying here. Paul's not saying that our sinful desires then instantly go away and cease to exist the moment the Spirit resides in your heart. He he didn't say that. He, He didn't compare this to a light switch that you flip and then the desires just turn off. Some very well may, but likely not all. And instead, rather than flipping a switch, it's, it's more, like, more like a dimmer. As these desires fading over time, decreasing both, God willing, in severity and in frequency. And I think that's an important clarification for us to have going into this as we begin to understand the Spirit's work in us because I think it's easy to give your life to Christ, to begin following Jesus and then feel that guilt and that shame for things you still desire. Recognizing it, it's, it's contrary to the way God has called you to live, but that desire remains. You catch what I'm saying? I think all of us still have some of that. And so I think it's important to remember for that, but it's also important as we look at others, isn't it? It's important as we, as we look at others and Because it's easy to look at those who still struggle with certain desires, desires maybe other than yours, and shame them for them, to judge them for a desire, to accuse them of not walking by the Spirit because of that unique desire that they struggle with, when in fact it's in the midst of those sinful desires for things contrary to the way God created us, contrary to the way God has called us to live, that we are most reliant on the strength of the Spirit, amen? It is when those desires arise that we are most reliant on the Spirit as we walk by the Spirit. And so what I want us to make sure we understand is that faithfully following the way of Jesus is not an entire lack of sinful desires. It is instead relying on the Spirit's strength to withstand those desires. Does that make sense? And that may be different than what you've been told. You may have been shamed for what it is that you're feeling and what it is that you're thinking. You may be accused of not being a faithful Christian because you still have thoughts. No, no, that's, that's not what this says. Faithfully following the way of Jesus is not a lack of desires. It's relying on the Spirit's strength in the midst of those desires. But that's the entire Christian life. That is the entire journey, walking with the Spirit in constant reliance on the Spirit's strength, not your own. Walking by the power of the Spirit, not your own. And if that's how we keep from falling to one side and and abusing our freedom, how do we keep from falling to the other side and losing our freedom that we talked about last week? Well, again, here we, we trust in the Spirit by yielding to the Spirit's leading, right? Deferring to His wisdom and His guidance. And we think of yield, like think of a yield sign on the road. Think of uh, anybody, have you driven on the roundabout here on Golf Road? There's yield signs. When you go to get on that roundabout, please, by the grace of God, yield to the people in the circle. We're going to get this down. In about 25 years, we're going to learn how to drive that roundabout. We're yielding to the Spirit's leading. Look here at verse 18 with me. Paul goes on to say, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, 
you are not under the law. The Mosaic Law, remember, that was, that was the training wheels that held God's, held God's people up. That was the guardian that taught them how to live. That was the manual, so to speak, that answered all the questions that they might have had. It was, in some sense, sort of like that script that a telemarketer reads from or a customer service rep when you call in that they read from. It's got all the answers. It gives a response for every situation they might face. It answers every question they, a customer might ask. And so when you call in and you're like, all of a sudden, I'm paying like $432 a month for my cable bill, and it was like $4 last month, what happened? Uh, you call in and you're like, yeah, no. Remember we had yeah, no last week? Midwestern saying, you're like, first you went, oh, got a big bill. And then as the Midwestern, you said, yeah, no. And so you called the cable company because you're like, I got to cancel this. This isn't okay. And, and what they do is they're flipping in their binder, flipping in their manual. And the manual says, when a customer calls to cancel, turn to page 42. He flips, turns to page 42. And he says, yeah, guess what? Um, we, we got a 12-month promo that just came out today that we would like to offer you that can reduce your bill from $432 to $431.99. But it just started today. I'm glad you called. Meanwhile, the copyright date on that binder they're reading from is from eight years ago. But now that Christ has freed us from the burden of the Mosaic Law, he's, he's freed us from that old manual. Now what? How do, we, how do we navigate these complexities of life without the Mosaic law? And you're probably thinking, like, turn to the new manual, right? He just replaced the old manual with the new manual, the old covenant with the new covenant. We still, we still got a manual. We have a manual. Did you catch that? Yeah? Okay. No, most still haven't caught it yet. That's okay. I was just looking at Jason because I knew he was going to catch that one. But unlike the old manual, the new one... The new manual doesn't appear to clearly cover every conceivable situation. It, it doesn't appear at first to answer every question that your 10-year-old sons might ask over and over and over again, just as a hypothetical. If you have 10-year-old sons, you know what I mean. At least it doesn't answer it with the clarity that we desire. It doesn't answer it with the, the level of detail and specificity that we might hope for. There's still... There's still a lot of gray areas in there, isn't there? And so what do we do then? What do we do with the gray? Well, that's where legalism comes in. That's where fundamentalism comes in. And they're like, we're here to save the day, right? They come in and say, rather than navigating the shades of gray, let's just remove them. And so what legalism does is it darkens in some gray and it erases some gray to make everything black and white. Rather than embracing that freedom, it, it eliminates that freedom by writing its own manual and adding its own rules and regulations in absence of God's. And so legalism, rather than uh, using discernment to navigate that freedom by trusting in the Spirit and yielding to the Spirit's leading, uses a predetermined decision. What it does is it restricts what Scripture has left open. It requires what Scripture has left optional by writing its own rules. What legalism does is it rejects Christ's freedom. It says, no thank you. It rejects Christ's freedom and it rejects the Spirit's leading. And what it does is it requires followers to 
submit yet again to a yoke of slavery, as he opened with last week. A yoke of slavery that they've carved with their own hands, chains that they put on themselves and those that are with them. And it begins to resemble a cult more than a church. Because what they're saying is that you need to look just like us and you need to line up with us, not only to be accepted by us, but to be accepted by God, to be included in his family. And that was exactly the situation that these churches were facing, wasn't it? They were, they were outsiders coming in saying, faith in Jesus, that's good, that's necessary, but it's not enough. You also need to adhere to aspects of the Mosaic Law, those pieces that we've picked. You also need to adopt some of our cultural customs in order to be accepted. That's what legalism does. Rather than trusting in ourselves, though, rather than building our own set of training wheels to put on the bike when God took them off to keep from falling and writing our own manual to guide us on the journey and navigate those twists and turns. No, God is calling us to live by faith, isn't he? He's calling us to live by faith in Jesus. He's calling us to yield to the Spirit's leading, trusting in him. And not just when we're lost, not just when we don't know where to turn, but every step of every day, living by the Spirit and trusting in the Spirit, knowing Knowing that the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God Himself, God within us, He will never lead us away from God, and He will never go against the will of God, will He? When we are walking by the Spirit, we are being led closer to God. But what happens if we don't? Just hypothetical. What if we're like, yeah, no, I've got this, I'm good. Guess what? That's exactly what Paul shows us next. Isn't that funny how that works? He's going to show us what happens. He's going to show us the result of failing to trust in the Spirit, failing to live by the Spirit, and instead trusting in ourselves and living by the flesh. And first he shows us that living by the flesh abuses our God-given freedom. Living by the flesh abuses our God-given freedom. We fall to that side and abuse our freedom. And we do it by embracing our selfish, self-centered desires of the flesh. Everything becomes about me. And so he begins in verse 9 saying, now the works of the flesh, right, these sinful desires, they are evident, right? They are visible. They are easily seen. They stand out like an Iowa farm boy in the middle of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. I don't take a map with us, though, okay? That's like... You're just bound to get, that's not going to go well. Instead, you just act like you're sending a text message when really you have Google Maps out. Still stand out. There's no making, there's no mistaking, though, the works of the flesh. There's no mistaking how they are contrary to the way God has created us and called us to live. And he lists 15 of them here. Uh, like, nice big list. Chances are we're going to check off a couple. 15 examples of how we abuse our God-given freedom, how the, what it is that the works of the flesh produce, what it is they manufacture, and they kind of fit into four nice groups. And the first group is sexual in nature. Right? The first group is sexual in nature. He begins the list with sexual immorality. Uh, the Greek word there is porneia. It's a, it's a general term that really includes all kinds of sexual sin. And the idea here is that we are abusing the sexual freedom that God has given us. We are enjoying this good, God-given gift of sex 
We're enjoying that gift outside the context in which God intended for it to be enjoyed within, within the context of marriage, right? Between one man and one woman for one lifetime, one husband, one wife. But what I love here is Paul, we tend to elevate certain sexual sins above the others, don't we? We do. Paul doesn't, does he? No, he's not elevating any one sexual sin above the other. No, what he does is he does the exact opposite, and he casts the widest net as possible. He's already used a very generic term, and then he goes on, not just that, but, but sexual impurity, any kind of, uh, any kind of per- perversion and, and sensuality, any kind of unrestrained sexual indulgence. He, he begins with things that are sexual in nature. Then he describes a couple of things that are religious in nature. Things that would have been very familiar to the the people in Galatia who were Gentile Christians. They were pagans before coming to Christ. And so he starts with with idolatry. And we think of idolatry today as like anything in place of God. But he's really going back to their true pagan roots and their worshiping of actual physical idols created by their hands. The idea of, of worshiping creation over the Creator. And next he calls out sorcery or magic. And just to be clear, like he's not talking about that sleight of hand card trick that you think is so cool and you got to show everybody. Um, He's not talking about that. He's not talking about sleight of hand. He's talking about the occult. He's talking about witchcraft. He's talking about spells, things that were common in this time, in this region to these people. People who were before Jesus relying on creation rather than the Creator. That was how they practiced and experienced their spirituality. The third group, the longest group of them all, is relational in nature. How we interact with each other. And he starts with enmity, right? This, This hostility that we have towards others rather than loving. Next comes strife. Think of strife as always wanting to pick a fight. Always wanting to be wrong, and not just that, always wanting to make sure everyone else knows that everyone is being right and everyone else is wrong. Then he goes on to, uh, we're prone to fits of anger, right? The, the rage monster. Uh, my boys, they love this show, Dude Perfect. I don't know if you've seen it. It's basically like five little kids who grew up and became big kids, and they do silly stunts, and they record them, and they post them on YouTube, and a gazillion kids across the world watch them do silly things. But they're good guys, but one of their skits is Rage Monster, and they go around bashing everything. And it's evident when the Rage Monster comes out, isn't it? It's evident when your fuse is real short and somebody sets you off and everybody else is walking around eggshells around you. Next come jealousy and envy, right? This lack of contentment with the good gifts God has provided and coveting the gifts that he's given to others. Then forming rivalries and dissensions and divisions, forming factions. And, and this is so evident based on how you are seeking to create conflict rather than pursuing peace. Seeking to divide what it is Christ has united, his church, his body, his bride, singular. And then the last group we see is excessive in nature. And it's this idea of overindulging in yet another one of God's good gifts that he has given us, and that is the gift of the fermented grape. It's okay, you can enjoy that, you can laugh a little bit, but he's talking about here using it in destructive ways, 
right? He calls out drunkenness, and then he calls out uh, wild drunken orgies that would have been common uh, in their pagan worship. Like, they gathered in their temple for those things not to worship Jesus before they came to Christ. Can you imagine the transition they had one Sunday to the next? But there's freedom in this, isn't there? But, but legalism, if we can go back to legalism, legalism says drunkenness, work of the flesh. And so what legalism does is it builds rules upon rules upon rules. And what it does is it prevents drunkenness by just forbidding alcohol altogether, just outright restricting any of that freedom. It just takes it away. God didn't do that, though. God didn't do that. No, I mean, if we just read through the New Testament, like, you're not but a couple of verses into the Gospel of John, and Jesus is out there turning water into wine at a wedding. And he's not sorry for it. Flip a few more pages, and Paul, he tells young Timothy, have a glass of wine for that little digestive issue you got going on. I don't know if my doctor's ever recommended that. God didn't forbid having a drink. God did forbid being drunk. He did warn against drinking in excess. And the reason is because of how destructive alcohol is when abused. And I think many of us in this room, you've experienced that firsthand. You've either experienced it by your own hand and the things that you've done when you had too much. Or you experienced it at the hand of another that did. Maybe a father. Maybe an uncle. Over and over and over again. Man, what, what God causes to, what Paul causes to, is rather than being drunk on wine, what he told the church in Ephesus was, uh, it's like rather being drunk on wine, be filled with the Spirit. You want to be intoxicated? Be intoxicated with the Spirit's presence in your life. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. More and more and more and more. But the works of the flesh that he's talking about here, please don't think that it's limited to these 15 things. Because what does he say next? And anything like these. It was never meant to be an exhaustive list. They were meant to be examples. Examples that Paul likely witnessed when he was there in Galatia with them. A story that we read about in Acts 13 and 14. When he was there, when he planted these churches. And when he was there, he, he warned them against these things. And here in verse 21, he warns them yet again. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, when I was with you just a couple of years ago, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If by any chance you weren't paying attention, I bet you I got your attention now, don't I? And you're like, did, did he just say what I thought he said? Yeah. But he probably didn't mean what you may have thought he meant. I'm sure we're all guilty of at least, at least one of these, right? Some of you may have had a fit of anger, a little rage monster, when someone cut you off on the way to church this morning, and that's why you were late. Somebody cut me off. A little, little, little rage monster there. And not only that, maybe a little jealousy, a little envy of the car that actually cut you off. Uh, every time a Tesla drives by, Ethan reminds me, Dad, Dad, Tesla, you should have gotten a Tesla, Dad. I don't know where that fascination came with. Man, I, um, I checked one of these off this morning. I, uh, I, had a little, uh, I had a little fit of anger, a little rage monster at the printer this morning when it jammed not once, not twice, but thrice. 
And like, let's say, let's say you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know, Pastor Ash, I made it through all 15 of those. I think I'm doing good. Pretty sure you've done things like these. Pretty sure. I don't say always and never very often, so I'm just going to go with pretty sure. Because what God said, and he says, for all, no asterisk, no foot, no, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us here. Every one of the kids downstairs. And so you might be thinking, so is that it then? Like, I crossed one off that list. Is that it? Like, one strike and you're out, game over? Right? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200? Are we, are we eternally damned from one fit of rage with the printer? Apart from Jesus, yeah. But by the grace of God through faith in Jesus? No. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? God knew we were going to check things off this list even after we began following Jesus. But what he's saying here is that our citizenship in the kingdom of God, being included as a member in his family, it's not something you've earned, which also means it's not something you can lose. Does that make sense? You can't lose it because you didn't earn it. No, what does he say here? He says that it is inherited. It is given. It is a gift of God's grace given to you secured by Christ's death on the cross, where he took on our sin, where he took on every fit of anger, that envy, the jealousy, and all the things like this. And by us simply receiving that forgiveness by faith in Jesus, isn't it? And believing in his name, that he will save his people from their sins, the angel told Joseph before he was born. And that faith is what defines us as followers of Jesus. That faith is what unites us, uniting us to God as his children, uniting us to each other as family. We are no longer enemies of God. We are no longer strangers. And so Paul here, he's not talking about a single occurrence, an occasional slip-up. No, he's talking about unrepentant sin. He's talking about embracing a life of sin and those things that dishonor God. He's talking about indulging in our sinful nature and those things contrary to the way God has created and called us to live. He's, he's talking about feeding our flesh, a feeding frenzy of sin, so to speak, rather than fighting against it, rather than receiving Christ's forgiveness for it. He's saying here that embracing the flesh is evidence of rejecting the Spirit. You, you said no thank you to that passport that he handed you to the kingdom of heaven to the new creation when Christ returns and eternity in his presence. He said, yeah, no, I'm good. I like this stuff. And so whereas living by the flesh abuses our God-given freedoms, he goes on to show how living by the Spirit produces God-honoring fruit, right? And notice, Scripture says fruit, doesn't it? It does not say vegetables, amen? It's not the vegetable of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Think about like kale, spinach, chard. Like even the name's disgusting. The only thing those are good for is blending in a smoothie. And even then, what do you do? You cover it up with fruit, berries and bananas. It's fruit of the Spirit, not fruit of the vegetables. Look at what he says in verse 22 and 23. 
He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's love. It is joy. It is peace. It is patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. It's self-control. And against all such things, there's, there's no law. But let's be careful here. Paul's not describing what you need to be doing. No, he's describing what you are becoming. This isn't, the fruit of the Spirit isn't a how-to list. It's not a self-help list because there's, these aren't the things that you're doing. No, these are the things that the Spirit is doing in you. These are character traits the Spirit is forming within you. As you live by the Spirit, being conformed into the image of Christ, growing to be more like Jesus, who perfectly portrayed each and every one of these in the incarnation, didn't he? Jesus portrayed selfless, sacrificial love that lays down, he laid down his life for the good of others. He, he had joy that delighted in obedience to the Father. Peace in relationship with the Father. Patience as he, he didn't rush God. He didn't, he didn't try and get ahead of God. No, he trusted in his will. He trusted in his timing. He trusted in the work of the Spirit. Even as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with blood dripping from his head. He, he portrayed kindness that extends grace and was empathetic towards others. And goodness, generously working for the good of others. He, he had faithfulness. He was loyal and reliable, true to his word. Gentleness. He was, he was meek and humble, saying himself that I am gentle and lowly in heart in Matthew 11. And he had self-control, not living by the flesh, but Jesus in his humanity lived by the Spirit. Not indulging in the flesh, but living a life that honored God. But I also want us to know, not only is it not vegetables of the Spirit, it's fruit, singular. Because he wears gifts of the Spirit, right? Gifts, plurally, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, um, are, it's a plurality. And the reason there is there's no one gift that every person has. Right? There's no one gift. There. Not everybody can speak in tongues. Right? There's no one gift everybody has, and no one person has every gift. That's not the case with the fruit singular of the Spirit. It's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit. Because the Spirit is forming each and every one of these traits in each and every one of us that possess the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Fruit of the Spirit. And like, these are important, aren't they? This is what it is that we want to grow to be more like, the Spirit working in us. And so what we're going to do is when we finish this letter in Galatians, we're going to send a new nine-week series going through each one of these in a series called, wait for it, Fruit of the Spirit. Really creative that day. But I think we all desire this fruit, don't we? We all desire to produce God-honoring fruit. We all want to possess these character traits because I think... We want to grow to be more like Jesus, but how? Like, when are we getting to the how-to last, Strash? How does the Spirit grow fruit in us? Well, let me start with how it doesn't happen. Right at the end of verse 23, he said, against such things there is no law. Spiritual growth cannot be legislated. Despite what the legalists might want you to think, spiritual growth cannot be legislated. It, it doesn't form by adhering to certain rules and adding training wheels back on the bike. But not only that, the spiritual fruit, it cannot be manufactured. It can't be manufactured by another person or by another program. And yet so often, I think that's our expectation, isn't it? That that's what we're looking for? We're expecting others to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And we're holding others responsible for our 
felt lack of spiritual growth, don't we? We put that responsibility on others. And when, when they don't meet our expectations of them, when we don't feel like they are causing us to grow, when we feel like we're not growing spiritually, what do we do? We pack our bags and we leave. And then we go put those same expectations on someone else. That's not how fruit grows. Now, in order for, for fruit to grow on a plant or on a vine or for a tree to bear fruit, there, we need a few things. Now, I... Granted, growing up a farm boy in Iowa, we grow corn, and that's a vegetable. Um, but I think the same thing applies to fruit, so bear with me here. Let's see if it does. I think we need a few things. I think, number one, I think we need some soil, don't we? We need soil and an environment rich in nutrients to grow. And that looks like being a part of a, of a safe and healthy church. That looks like having a safe and healthy home to grow in. We need soil, but we also we need water, don't we? Not much fruit growing without water. We need nourishment. And that nourishment comes from time with God, communing with God, abiding in His presence, abiding in His Word, listening to God speak, being with God in prayer, being with God in silence, just being with Him. We need soil, we need water, but we also need sunshine. Chicago's going to break out of this Seattle phase that we get every spring. We need sunshine. We need encouragement from others. We need community from others. We need to be living this life together with others. But most importantly, the fourth thing that we need is time. We need time. There are no shortcuts. There's no special fertilizer that I keep in my office for you if you schedule time with me. There's no genetically modified seed to help us grow faster. No, this is good old-fashioned organic farming, guys. And this growth that we desire, I think we get frustrated when we're not growing at the rate we hope for, but we need to measure this growth in the, over decades, not days. Look back at your life 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I'm not going to keep on going because I don't want to make anybody feel too old in here today. Let's just go back 10 or 20. Look at the growth over that extended time. And I want you to ask yourself, over that time, you might actually be thinking back 10, 20 years and you might be frustrated with your lack of growth. I don't know. Um, but here's the question I want to ask. How have you been walking by the Spirit in that time? How have you been reliant and living by and trusting in and yielding to the Spirit? Because here's the thing. How can you ever expect to grow spiritually if you're only walking with the Spirit for an hour on Sunday morning? That's not the journey that we've been called to. Because while we, we can foster growth, we can, we can help with the environment and the nourishment and the encouragement. We cannot force the growth. So instead, what we do is we listen to the Spirit. We listen to Him speak. We learn to be more in tune with the Spirit. We, we spend time walking with the Spirit, fully reliant on the Spirit to bring about growth, growth in your life, growth in the life of those you love, growth in your children's life, praying for them, praying the simple prayer that the Spirit would stir in their hearts and draw them to God. Knowing that the fruit that the Spirit produces, it's visible, it's vibrant. Remember the picture of that pretty fruit up there? Like that made me want to go have a fruit pizza. 
I had a fruit pizza for the first time a few weeks ago. It's basically like a glorified sugar cookie with some frosting and a whole lot of fresh fruit on it, and it was awesome. Uh, it was a gift from my wife, and I think I ate three-fourths of it. But it was red and green and yellow and purple. It was beautiful, and it tasted even better. But the, the fruit the Spirit produces, it is, it is it's visible, it's vibrant, it's, it is bright, it is beautiful. Because just as Jesus said, a tree will be known by its fruit, he said the world will know us. It will recognize us as followers of Jesus by our what? One word. What is that? Love. By our love. Our love for one another. Our love for our neighbor. Our love for our enemy. Because the fruit the Spirit produces, each and every one of these, they're beneficial towards others, right? They, they nourish others. They, they feed others because it is through this that we fulfill the law of loving our neighbor as ourselves. We don't need a law to legislate this. We have the Spirit to grow within us. We, we love those. We nourish those that we love out of an overflow of joy and peace, patient and gentle with others as they grow out of kindness and goodness, empathy and generosity towards others, faithful to fulfill our commitments and promises as a loyal and reliable friend, living in self-control as we rely on the Spirit. And you still might be wondering, but what do I do? You say, I told you a lot of things the Spirit does this morning. I haven't told you a lot of what you're to do, have I? How do we actively live by the Spirit? How do we cultivate this fruit in our lives? Paul closes with kind of two things. In the first, he says, crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. He says in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who are in Christ, who have been saved by faith in Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I think what he's saying here is that to promote the growth of fruit, we need to be pulling out the weeds. We need to be pulling out the weeds, and when you pull out the weeds, don't bring a weed whacker and just chop them off because they're going to grow right back. When you pull out the weeds, get on your hands and knees. Dig down into the dirt and pull that thing up by the root. Not on your own power, but by the Spirit's power. The Spirit's going to let you know when there's a weed. He, he, he lets us know. We just sometimes like, I'm, I wasn't listening. I was too busy. No, but promote the growth of the fruit by pulling out the weeds recognizing those sinful desires that exist in your heart, those thoughts in your mind that are, that are contrary to the way God has called and created us to live, putting them to death, knowing just as Paul said back in chapter 2, that Jesus, he took on our sin, he took on our flesh, and it was nailed to the cross, crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago. And it is no longer our sinful nature, it is no longer our flesh that lives, but Christ who lives in you through his spirit that he has sent to you. Crucify the flesh, and number two, keep in step with the Spirit. He closes saying in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, if, we're gonna, if we want these things that he has told us to, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. A more little, literal translation might be, by the Spirit, let us march. Let's follow his leading. He's the Pied Piper, and we are following. But can we be honest? It's a little scary to live without training wheels, isn't it? It's a whole lot easier with a three-ring binder telling us what to do on page 42. It's easier to rely on ourselves. It's easier to rely on someone else or something else, something that you can see, something you can touch. I can't even see the Spirit, right? It's easier to trust in something that is tangible, something that is practical, something that is controllable, a plan of action, a list of steps, and you didn't give us any today because God didn't. This isn't a sermon about a list of steps. It's a sermon about the Spirit. 
It's a sermon about submitting and surrendering our lives to the Spirit. We, we don't believe in a duality. We believe in a trinity, amen? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, I think we've kicked the Spirit to the curb. And what he's saying is, no, no, no. That is God. That is God in you. That is God working in you. The life Christ has called us to, living in this freedom he has secured by the spirit that he has sent, it is a life lived by faith, not by sight. Lived in constant surrender to the spirit, trusting in the spirit by relying on his strength, yielding to his leading with every step of every day, every day of our lives. And I want to close with a prayer that desires just that, that seeks the spirit stirring in our life to produce that fruit that Paul's written about. And it's a prayer written by Anglican Pastor John Stott, one that he prayed every morning when he woke up. He didn't wake up and check Twitter. He passed away before Twitter came out, so that wasn't even a thing. But when he woke up, he recited this prayer every morning. And I want us to read this prayer together to close our time together this morning. Does that sound good? You read this with me? This is our prayer for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.